Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Rebecca Volley, Executive Director of Family to Family Support Network. And Dixie Weber is a System Service Line Director for Women's and Children's Services for Peace Health and is a National Advisor of Healthcare Programs for Family to Family Support Network. Family to Family Support Network is a pro-education nonprofit that trains healthcare professionals in neutral and compassionate care. And we have previously recorded with Rebecca about adoption, but today we are also speaking with Dixie to talk about something that is a critical communication skill, and that is talking to our patients or clients in a neutral and compassionate way. But before we learn more about neutral and compassionate care, let's get to know Rebecca and Dixie a little bit more. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for coming again. And welcome, Dixie, for the first time. So thanks so much for being a guest today. So first, could you provide a little bit of details about your background if you want to start, Rebecca? Sure. So I'm Rebecca Volley. I'm the founder of Family to Family Support Network. My background is actually education, not healthcare, but I'm super passionate about being in healthcare and teaching about unique families and neutral compassionate care. So I spent 10 years as an adoption liaison at Parker Adventist Hospital here just south of Denver and created the first uh, adoption support program that was hospital-based and found that we wanted to share the model, stepped away, and started a nonprofit. So we now actually support other unique families as well, not just adoption, but surrogacy, substance use disorder, incarcerated patients, LGBT+, all those outside-of-the-box families. So neutral compassionate care and that approach is just the core of what we teach and what we live and breathe. Thanks. And how about you, Dixie? Yeah, thank you for having me today. So as Nicole said before, I am the system director for Women's and Children's Services for the Peace Health System here in the Northwest. But I actually met Rebecca well over... 13 years ago when I worked with her in Denver. I'm a nurse by background and at that time was overseeing our neonatal intensive care unit and got to work firsthand with her and the patients and saw the impact of the model of care that she had created and how the nurses and the physicians felt empowered. The patient had a fantastic experience and it was because everybody had tools in their toolkit to be successful in the care of these patients. And so I have been teaching with Rebecca for multiple years. And when I actually moved to St. Luke's Health System in Boise, Idaho, took this model with us. And then the nurses, being as brilliant as they are, expanded and helped us expand the program to make sure that we covered surrogacy. Women who are pregnant and incarcerated, helping them to have a planned delivery and a connection to the healthcare system prior to that birth and then after. Uh, women who are struggling with substance use disorder, and then making sure that we have sensitivities and appropriate and adequate language to meet the needs of our LGBT plus population, including the transgender community who's coming in for gynecological or obstetrical care. 
So I'm happy to be here. And it's so fun to work with hospitals and teach them this model because where we say you don't know what you don't know. So the staff and the doctors come in and they're like, we don't know why we're here. We don't know why we have to learn this. And then within a matter of minutes, there is a change that occurs and we get, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I've never heard this before. I can't believe that nobody taught this to me. And so that is what we do. And it's a fun, fun adventure, but incredible aha for our clinicians. Awesome. So the other question we always ask our guests, our favorite question is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? Do you want to start first this time, Dixie? (laughs) Sure. You know, why I do what I do is that most of us have not learned the concept of neutral compassionate care. And the concept really is, is meeting the patient where they're at, but learning to recognize your own biases, your own history, any stories that you have or experiences that may interfere with the care that you're going to provide that patient and how to leave that outside the door and meet the patient in a neutral space. That's not core curriculum in academia today for nursing or medical providers. And so this is my 20th year as a nurse. And so we're playing catch up is basically what we are doing for all those clinician and practitioners that are already in practice. And some of them are along the journey of understanding their own biases and understanding how that might affect the care that they give. And some of them have never spent any time even thinking about that. And it's hard to hold people accountable for utilizing accurate language, understanding best practice and approaches if they've never been taught best practice and approaches. So part of my job, especially as a leader and a healthcare executive, is making sure that we give them the tools to be successful, educate them as to the why, help them with the understanding of what does this mean in my practice, and then hold them accountable when they don't follow that piece of the puzzle. Because it's hard to say to somebody, you know what, you can't say that to a patient if they have never heard that that's not an acceptable way to approach a patient. Thank you. And what about you, Rebecca? I know you've answered this question before, but (laughs) what she said, no, I'm just kidding. I would say I didn't mention before that I'm an adoptive mom. We have three kids through adoption and it was going through that experience. I had never, having gone through infertility, had never interfaced with a healthcare even system beyond just the infertility doc in my primary care. So I found myself in labor delivery and women's services and all this space I'd never been in before. And it was just really clear they didn't really know what to do with us. And I think what drives me is the fact that it's not malicious. Like Just like Dixie said, we can't hold people accountable for an approach that we just kind of assume they have. And often when Dixie mentioned that we come in and train we'll have nurses and doctors be like, well, I already offer neutral compassionate care, you know, and that why are you telling me I'm not compassionate? And that's by no means what we're doing. It's just a matter of how can you have the tools and the also the self-reflection to really refine those skills and be really conscious of what you're doing. So, so many times I've trained and had nurses and doctors come to me and say, you know, Rebecca, I didn't know that what I was saying was offensive. I had no idea I shouldn't say that to patients, especially through the adoption world, which is the beginning lens of this. But that's really unfair to put healthcare professionals in that role. And I remember getting really defensive of nurses and doctors later and thinking, well, you can't be mad at them and offended that they're not saying what they should say because no one's telling them. So that's really what drives me is I I don't want that to be something that people are judged for in healthcare when no one's 
acknowledging and addressing the gap in education. Well, that is a very compassionate response. (laughs) (laughs) Is it neutral? (laughs) Well, I am very excited. And like we said today, we're going to talk about neutral and compassionate care. So before we jump in, I know Dixie, you kind of gave us a little overview on that, but I'm going to back up a little bit. In a previously recorded episode about adoption, you talked about a little bit about your nonprofits. But for our listeners who haven't checked out episode 41, can you briefly share with us and our listeners what the mission and goal of your nonprofit is? Sure. I would love to do that. So The original program was the Family to Family Adoption Support Program. It was just focused on adoption and it was really a program. Now we're the Family to Family Support Network. And really what we want to do is empower healthcare professionals to care for unique families. And we do that in a couple different ways. Our training includes as Dixie mentioned, updated language, like how can we give you the correct words so you're not sitting there the whole time thinking, I don't want to offend them, I don't want to offend them, I don't want to offend them. And if you're thinking that, you're not giving your best level of care. If you're more worried about using the right pronoun and you're so afraid that you're going to offend, what does that do? How does that derail your autopilot of best practice? So we really wanted to train with the tools, but then also to encourage healthcare professionals to stop and say, what am I thinking when she's talking about LGBT plus? What am I thinking when she's teaching about transgender men coming in to deliver? What thoughts am I having? And then we know our patients are like, dude, I know exactly what you're thinking, especially if people have never kind of done self-exploration. So if I had a nurse that came in that didn't agree with adoption, more times than not, I wouldn't even say 95% of the time, the mom would say after the nurse left, she doesn't believe in adoption, does she? She doesn't believe in what I'm doing, does she? Because they feel it. And so we have to consciously be aware of what we think and set it aside and be able to move into that space of best practice. So we also found that training wasn't enough, that we needed to stay with facilities and work within the hospital to implement a unique family program, which means Dixie's partners with me to work with task force to work on their policy and procedure and workflows to make sure that it's not person specific. So those times in your hospital where you think, oh, there's let's say a transgender man that's going to deliver, I hope so-and-so's on that night because she'll know what to do. Like, we don't want it to be like that. We want everything to be in place. Everyone's done their self-exploration. They've moved into a neutral space. So we needed to get in the wiring to change the culture. And then we needed to know what's available to the community to help support them and the unique families in the community. So our third part is to actually do community outreach with hospitals so that the hospitals know that they are now, or the community now knows that that hospital's unique family sensitive. So it was this little tiny idea, little loaves and fish action where we thought, we'll just do this. And then there were all these things that came out of it. And we found we could impact so many more patients if we were willing to take the idea and expand this neutral, compassionate care approach to all these different unique family populations. So that's really the focus of Family to Family Support Network. I was just going to echo what Rebecca said. It's important because most of us have received education and it's fantastic. And we're like, that was a great lecture or a great talk. But we go back to our home work environment and if nothing changes, all it was was education. So we spent anywhere from 12 to 18 months with the hospitals. And this is the part that I love because we dig in deep. We start peeling the onion, looking at policy. What does your policy say? Does it even have accurate language? Do you even have a policy to start with? What is your paperwork? What is your workflow? How are you notified of these patients? Who's paying these bills? All of that from a hospital operations perspective, we pull 
in the clinics where they're first receiving care and connecting with care. And then we make sure that the community is a part of the understanding of the process. The reason why we start with the hospital is because there's chaos at the bedside, just like Rebecca said. When we started this program in Idaho, I had nurses that ran away from these patients. They were like, I don't want that assignment. And now we have nurses that run towards these patients. And I'm in the Northwest now at Peace Health. And I would say the nurses are starving and hungry and the physicians are hungry for this information. And especially where we're looking at maternal mortality has not changed. Women are dying during the childbirth process and predominantly because they're not being listened to. Neutral compassionate care gets a lot of the things out of the way that allows you to then listen to the patient, right? Because you're not spending time trying to get over your own bias. And um, one of the nurses in Louisiana, when we trained with them, said this beautifully, you know, I may not agree. Let's take substance use disorder. Maybe you have a patient who's coming in who's pregnant, who utilized opioids throughout her pregnancy. A lot of people are upset about that, right? And so we go through the process. Well, why is it that when all of a sudden you become pregnant, if you're using an opioid or you're using alcohol or you're using marijuana, whatever it is before your pregnancy, all of a sudden you become pregnant and you have coping mechanisms that you didn't have before? No, you continue those coping mechanisms. So we help them to understand the fact that that's why it's important for women to get tapped into healthcare programs that support them during that pregnancy. But these are real people that are struggling with the same things that we all are struggling with. And so you have to see the person. And if you have a issue with that woman who was taking opioids during her pregnancy, you got to set that aside. It is none of your business. And guess what? You don't get a vote in their care or their decisions or the patients that they're coming with. And I'm really transparent and probably overly blunt when we teach, but you don't get a vote. You just don't. And so whatever you think should have happened or this person should or should not have done, it doesn't really matter. You don't get to vote in their life. It's their decisions in their life. And your job is to meet them in a neutral space and take great care of them. And so that's what we do is empower healthcare. I always say, I release you from passing judgment. Like you are a judgment-free zone now. Like you don't even have to judge. Guess what? You just get to take care of the patient in a great loving way. And that is the conversation that we have that's really deep down that starts to change culture. Okay. I love all of that. So first of all, I love, I think you're basically just doing what we're doing, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) trying to help providers or clinicians change the culture around communication, like listening to your patients and not saying certain things or saying things in a different way. And I think you're right. Like a lot of it comes from that judgment like, I don't think you should be doing drugs. I don't think you should be having sex with all those men. I don't think you should X, Y, Z. And it, and you don't get a vote. Also, the quality improvement nerd in me is like, <laughs> let's talk how you change systems. But that's obviously beyond this podcast. And we'll catch up with that on another time. But anyways, yes. Well, and I think that we tend to think the extremes, right? So I think about a doctor that walked in to a woman choosing adoption and he was supposed to discharge her. And his comment was, I'm not going to discharge you till you do the right thing. And he walked out. And that concept that that 
physician felt that he knew what the right thing was for her because he'd known her a whole 24 hour, maybe 48 hours through this hospital experience. That's an extreme. But we also know that comments are made to moms choosing adoption all the time. Comments are made to women that are dealing with substance use all the time. I mean, we've even talked, I know, uh, offline about how we hear nurses talking about the crack mom or the crack baby. And it's like that emotionally charged language sets a culture. And so that's one of the reasons when Dixie and I do go in and train, we used to just come in and train. We didn't make it mandatory. We, the hospital would have you know whoever wanted to sign up come to our trainings. And 100% of the time we trained and they said, um, we need you to come back and now train everybody. So we finally now, when we talk to hospitals, we just say, you just need to make it mandatory because you're going to anyway, <laughs> because we've seen it over and over and over again, because this is something no one has talked to them about. And Dixie really nailed it when she said, we can't hold them accountable if we've never told them in a point blank way, you can't say that to your patients. Like that is not something that's appropriate. I remember in that same visit, I think it was Louisiana where we were visiting hearing these stories, but we had a nurse that said every time she heard there was an adoption going on, even if she wasn't the nurse for that patient would make a point of going in and thanking that patient for choosing life. And that was really important to her that she, and she was really proud of the fact that she had done that. And I was like, yeah, let's talk about whether you should do that or not. And she was like, she got pretty offended. And finally, we just were like, well, you know what? From this day forward, never again. Like, that's not something you go in and say to a patient. You don't know that patient's history. You don't know whether that's helping them or hurting them. You don't have the backstory. And she just really felt it was important for them to know that she was supporting their decision and adoption. But those are the kind of things that stay in your suitcase. If you are thinking that, think away. You don't share it with your patient. You put it outside the door and you proceed with caring in that neutral, compassionate way, but you don't put your two cents in. And a lot of nurses do, a lot of doctors do because no one's ever said, oh, that? Yeah, you, you can't say that. <laughs> you really shouldn't <laughs> say that. Or let's think about how she may be hearing that. And that's when you talk about the communication piece. You are saying she's so brave for choosing adoption, but what she's hearing is, gosh, I'm a chicken if I back out of this. Like, I mean, she hears the other side, you're selfless for doing this. So I'm selfish if I parent. Like no one's ever stepped back to say, what might the patient be hearing? And if they have, it's rare. I think I can say that. Nicole and Steph, would you guys agree that it's rare that people kind of think through how things sound? Oh, yeah. I think they're like, oh, I, I'm telling them I'm proud or I'm giving them positive reinforcement. Yeah, and I think this really goes back to Stephanie. I've had this conversations when we've talked about maternal mortality and like uh, stuff around racism is intent versus impact. And a lot of times we say, well, those were not my intentions. And therefore we place a greater amount on intention more so than impact when really we need to flip that and say, no, we need to recognize and own what impact we have because intent is not more important than impact. Impact is more important than intent. But I also want to like slow us down and bring us back a little bit. And I want to, I know we've talked, we've thrown the concept around and I want to get a really good definition, clarification for our listeners. What is neutral and compassionate care and why is it important for clinicians? I'll start with it and then have Rebecca kind of round it out. Neutral compassionate care is making sure that you don't follow your autopilot 
in your intentions. When you have patients that you're caring for that you may not have had experience with, or you may have personal experience with histories that are similar to theirs, but taking a minute to stop and realize that you don't get a vote again, but the compassionate part is you need to care for all patients. And Rebecca's going to describe something that says above the line and below the line. And we utilize that terms, meaning every patient deserves to have a clinician at their bedside that cares about what's going to happen to them, supports them through their decisions, not influence their decisions, but supports them through their decisions and recognizes that they have their own individuality to that care. And that ability to be able to go in and wherever you're at in the story for that patient, just be with them and be present with them and recognize their humanity. That's what it is on the clinical side. But Rebecca, I really want you to kind of explain above the line and below the line, because I think that helps round out exactly what that means. So she's talking about midline. This is a new component that we've added, which is how we value our patients. Are they above midline or below midline? And we overvalue some patients and we undervalue some patients. So our goal is to be at midline with all patients. And so our ones and tens continuum that we've done in the past, which one is really anti and 10 is really pro. We added an up and down line that's a value slide, and it's where you see your patient and that cross, where they cross is the patient sweet spot, that patient care sweet spot. So how do you be in that space where you have neutral compassion for the patient while you're considering all these things about your thinking? So it's kind of a multifaceted answer. Because I think one leads to the other, right? And that that's the beauty of the whole situation is what we see is the reason why we focus on these populations is because we give them scripting, tools, accurate language, a process and a practice that they can use in their workflows. But the beauty of it is every patient gets better care, right? So we teach it on complex populations, but then actually they just start treating everyone neutrally and compassionate. So, you know, the mom, dad, first time baby, their care even gets better. Instead of most hospital systems start with the mom, dad, baby, because that's what we were all trained with. But that's not what families look like today, right? And so if we train on the more complex situations, then everybody benefits. If we train and support just the mom, dad, baby triad, we're missing a majority of the families that we take care of. Well, and that reminds me of, I can't think of the quotes, but I hear that too, like with maternal mortality, like... Until we fix maternal mortality for black women, white women or all women are not going to have the best outcomes. So it's bringing people from the margins, quote unquote margins, and and it it helps everyone. It's the all boats rise, right? That concept that everything gets better. Mm -hmm. If you're putting interventions in place for black and brown women, those that's going to better the care for white women as well. Not that that's why we should be doing it, but it's an extra bonus. (laughs) Yeah, it is a bonus. (laughs) Well, and I think that sadly, sometimes that has to be the way it's packaged because it's really frustrating to get people to acknowledge our current state with our with our patients. You know, I think that that's difficult for people to say. I was going to say most healthcare providers are white. And so the population of healthcare providers, both at the physician clinician level and at the nursing level, don't match the populations that they're taking care of. And so it is an added bonus, like you said, but it also then relates like, why is this important to me? Well, this is important to me because your sister 
is going to be safer in healthcare. Your daughter is going to have better healthcare and getting them to link that together. So neutral and compassionate care is a soft skill. How do you use that in your trainings or how do you teach that? That is a great question. I think that one of the issues that comes up is that instant resistance. Like I mentioned, I already offer compassionate care. I treat everyone the same. And that's all we hear that a lot from people in our trainings. And I think, first of all, we start with diving into the history of adoption, which I know you talked about episode 41 that I talked about some of that. And the assumption that so many of the healthcare professionals think they know the best way to care for adoption, we start off with talking about what you carry in your suitcase about adoption. And we use the suitcase analogy to really define experiences you've had, family members that have gone through adoption, things you've seen on TV, that this is us episodes, the movies, all of that stuff is in your suitcase. So we really encourage those participating to really explore their suitcase. And then we talk about m- multiple suitcases. Well, you also have one about surrogacy and LGBT plus and transgender, and those that are incarcerated. And so we all have our thoughts and feelings. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's one of the things that's different about our training. We don't tell people not to think it, but we do say you need to be aware you think that and leave it outside the door. Don't let it affect patient care. And so that has been met with a much more receptive heart from our healthcare professionals because we're not telling them what to think. The other piece, we use a one through tens continuum, which is basically anti being a one and pro being a 10. And Right now, our society is full of ones and tens, right? They're like extreme attitudes. They're loud, little crazy sometimes. And I think in some ways, we've silenced the two through nines. Like if I'm a three, I bet I'm not going to say anything because you might think I'm a one. And I don't want you to think I'm a one. So I'll be really quiet. But our goal as caregivers is to be a five. So we talk about striving to be a five. So we talk about those social issues. You know, what what's on your bumper sticker and on your yard sign should not be something that your patients know. You should be a five, neutral in social issues. And right now, everyone's talking about their beliefs on social issues with anyone and everyone and not appropriate in a healthcare setting. I mean, we just don't want that to impact care of patients. So we want to be a five. We want to know what's in our suitcase. And then lastly, we added this last year, a value slide, and it actually cuts across the continuum of ones through tens and is a vertical line. And it is how we value our patients. And do we have them above midline or below midline? When we train, we actually put a circle at the point where they cross and say, that's the patient care sweet spot. You are at a five and you have this person at a value of midline. So when I shared this idea with a friend of mine, she started laughing. She was like, oh my gosh, we just had a NICU nurse that was going to deliver at our hospital. And we started thinking, oh, we should get like essential oils and we should do special lighting and all this stuff. And she goes, Rebecca, we had her above midline. Like that's going to affect our care of our other patients. And we realized, why don't we care for everybody in a consistent care level like that? And so she laughed at that. And then I shared it with another friend of mine who's a black nurse on the East Coast. and she said, oh my gosh, I just dealt with this yesterday. And I said, well, tell me. She said, well, I came in and I got report and the nurse I was taking the patient from, she's a white nurse that was like, oh, wait till you meet this patient. He is a piece of work. And she goes, that's all she would tell me. He's a piece of work. He's a piece of work. She goes, I finally went in to introduce myself to him. She said he was sitting there all covered in dry blood. He hadn't been cleaned up. His sheets needed to be changed. He hadn't been offered pain medications. And he was a black man that had been assaulted. And she just thought, she goes, Rebecca, that's below midline. 
that nurse was seeing him below midline and wasn't valuing him as a patient. And she said, I, she actually told me, I don't think you can talk race because you're the whitest woman I know. And then, and then she said, actually, you may be the only one that can talk about this because that model makes sense. She goes, that model of having people at midline makes sense. And how often do we bump people below midline? And that's where we're not neutral anymore. And maybe it's because they're undocumented, they're uninsured, they are struggling with substance use disorder, they remind us of our ex-boyfriend, they're a Raiders fan. Sorry, I'm a Broncos fan. Like whatever, like we tend to do even the subtleties. If we really like the husband's really cool to us, we might bump that patient above midline. And so that impacts, impacts care along the way. So when we say neutral compassionate care, the neutral part is that piece because it impacts everything. When you think, how am I thinking about this patient and am I really caring for them at midline with compassion? And that's what we hope our healthcare professionals that take our training leave with. And that's what they tell us they leave with. So that's pretty exciting. So when you say midline, mm-hmm. like you talked about that, the NICU nurse or whoever that nurse was coming in and they were, they were going to go above that, you know, and obviously like going above and beyond, we're always taught that that's great. Like my healthcare organization for a long time did that Disney training. So how does that work when you're expected to go above and beyond? And I think the question is, why for that person you know, and not for all your patients? And that was the aha moment she had, was why isn't that our midline? If we know that would enrich this patient's experience so much that we would want our sister-in-law to experience that, why don't we do that for all our patients? And so I think that's a challenge. The other piece is we know that if you have a patient that you have way above midline, it's going to make your other assignments suffer. You're just not going to give the care. I mean, if we're just totally honest, if I'm all about the patient in 202, 206, I haven't seen in how long. So, I mean, this also just being candid about if you're overvaluing some people, other people are being left behind potentially. Yeah, I think that's really true. Unless you have one patient, which nobody ever. And I think the big piece too, there's two additional points that I would make. One is it gives us language to challenge our staff because then we can say, whoa, you got something in your suitcase about that? Or you can say, you seem to have dropped that patient below midline. Let's talk through what's going on with you. Because what doesn't feel good is I'm sensing some implicit bias. Like, (laughs) let's talk about your implicit bias. Like, we wouldn't do that, right? So my hope and prayer is this becomes like this language that people can just use universally that you need to be a five. Like, whoa, you're, you're leaning towards the ones and tens when you say that. That means you're getting off that five. That's a neutral space. The other thing I'm really hoping with this is that it makes all programs more successful. So if I talk with a person who has a program that addresses substance use disorder, I don't care how amazing that program is. If that patient is not met with neutral, compassionate care, they're out of there. So if you don't have a receptivity from your patients by the way you approach them, doesn't matter how great your program is. I feel like that way about maternal mortality as well. If you do not have people doing what we call the heart work around racism, doesn't matter how many safety bundles you have because you're not making yourself receptive to the conversations that have to happen to change the daily racism that our brown and black moms are care are dealing with every day. So how do we do that work alongside all this great programming? Because programming is not going to make the change. The interaction and the communication is going to make the change. 
my heart is just so full and so happy right now. I just am like, sign me up. How can I help your mission? (laughs) What I love how you frame, like, I think you're going below midnight line is in some other podcast episodes, we've talked about this idea of calling in instead of calling out. And I think when you say, oh, your implicit bias is showing, that's the more calling out. And when we talk about this scale, what a great way to frame that conversation. The next thing I want to talk about is for myself too, and I can imagine our listeners are like, yeah, oh my, you're right. I am over undervaluing. And especially I think the hard part are for those folks that we undervalue. So then what work or what training do you offer then to help providers to be like, okay, how do I get to a value neutral place with someone that I don't agree with? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that's the reason why we do the education up front so that you have to have an aha moment right, in order for culture to change. And then we walk alongside the hospital healthcare teams as they start to work. So let me take an example. We were just working with a hospital team and we'll utilize the word, is she going to give her baby up for adoption, right? Or is she going to put her baby up for adoption? And those that have been through our training understand, well, that comes from 100 years ago type language. It's not modern language and appropriate language. So we autocorrect with them right away that says, you mean she's considering placing her child. So your words need to match what's on your policy, needs to match on the paper that's going to the patient. And I think from that perspective, that's really important because it gives the tool across the way. So then we start with the education, we start to work on the tools and rapid cycle improvement process with the hospitals and the healthcare setting. And from there, we start to really help them change their language. And we use indicators such as our beautiful purple and white tree on the door that says stop turn off your autopilot and think about what you're going to say before you go in. Think about the pronoun utilization that this patient has asked you to use. I always feel bad for the the lab guy who comes up the next morning after postpartum to draw the next day labs. And he walks into a room and he says, hi, mom, to the woman in the bed. And she's not the mom. She's the surrogate. And the, and the mom is snuggled in the recliner with a chair. What's the message we just told that mom? is that you're not a real mom. So it's instances like that that are really practical instances as to why the education needs to occur. And because it's mandatory, everyone's supporting everybody's language change. Everybody's starting to say things about the suitcase. Everyone's getting that shift in culture. It's been hard to go online because of COVID, but we still believe that This program, much like Baby Friendly, every other year we'll do in-person trainings where they can bring in the folks that are like, I don't really need this. And everyone around is like, dude, you need this training. (laughs) I mean, because we hear more from the coworkers. And sometimes when they get defensive, they're like, I don't act like that. And you're like, but you know a nurse who does. And they're like, yeah, I do know a nurse. They're like, well, we're all going to learn it then. You know, I think that the community feel of it is what shifts. And like Dixie said, it changes the whole continuum. The electronic medical record starts reflecting the patient's. 
it has gender identity and not just biological gender. And it has some of these things that say, we see you and we understand your needs are different. And we're not just going to force you into the computer as female, even though you're a male coming in transgender to deliver, which is something we're hearing a lot that we have that situation where a man comes in and he's having vaginal bleeding and they need to put him in the computer. And he says, I'm not, I'm not a woman. Do not put me in the computer as a woman. They're like, yeah, but I need to mark that you're having vaginal bleeding. (laughs) Like, how do we make that all work? Well, we have to work in the fine tuning in the hospital. So I think that's where the culture change comes from, Nicole, like you're asking, because it's everybody's on the same journey together. And everybody now has had the aha moment of I know now that I don't know, and we're all in this together. And we're not going to judge each other. We're just going to be like, Oh, my gosh, I say it wrong, too, still. But let's get it right. Yeah, I really like that. I think that Nicole and I would both agree. We would try. We don't really work clinically right now. But if we did, we would always try to be neutral and compassionate. But I would even want to do this training. And how would I call in my co-workers? Because I have nurse friends and they tell me things all the time. And I'm like, I don't think you're supposed to talk like that. But I I don't always know how to be neutral and compassionate with that either, because I'm usually just mad that they did that or I ignore them and just let it go, which I don't think either one is helpful to the patient in the long run. So I think going through that together and knowing how to call in your colleagues is, is really great. And they can call you in as well. And they will. I mean, I think that's the other transparency that Dixie and I have is when we train, we talk so open about our own struggle, our own inability to talk about a population we don't know. When we have people talking adoption, they're like trying to ask a question. They're like, oh, I don't know how to ask this. Well, I feel the same way talking about racism in the birthplace for me. I I don't know the right lingo now. I'm still searching for words and hoping I'm not being offensive, but I'm searching for words and hoping to not feel offensive. That's a win because that's what our unique families want to know. They want to know that you see them. I just put out a survey for birth moms. And one of the questions on it was, how did you feel your nurses treated you, supportive as a mom, et cetera? And one of them said, I just felt like they wanted me to disappear. And I sat there and thought, as much as we strive for patients to feel seen, that just broke my heart. Because what that nurse probably was thinking was, I want you to disappear because I don't know how to care for you. That's what I think that mom was probably feeling. If we don't have the tools we can be really standoffish. And so I I did want to reach back and go, that was about her not feeling like she could care for you efficiently. You know, it wasn't about you, but man, it felt like it was about her. We never want our patients to feel like we want them to disappear. Yeah, and if possible, I just want to add to that. You know, we talked about the ones practicing today, caring for patients today. This is new conceptual models of care and expectations. But this should be ideal prime criteria for academia and that the next generation comes out with this skill anyways. And when I sit with CEOs, I always love this question because that's my job is to go sit with the CEO and talk to them about why they should invest in a program that teaches soft skills And we walk them through, these are the scenarios that are occurring in your hospital. We have a pathway that allows you to have better patient experience, better provider and nurse satisfaction, you know, hardwires it within your system so it's not person dependent. And really from a legal risk perspective, saves you from being in that legal risk category. We share stories and it's not uncommon for us to go in and talk to a team and they say, well, 
we don't have to worry about this baby's going to go home with a prospective adoptive family because we do discharge teaching on the newborn to the attorney. And then the attorney turns around and teaches it to the prospective adoptive family. And I'm like, time out. Whoa, hold on. Attorneys should not be teaching how to care for newborns because your policy says that you can't have a prospective adoptive family in the birth center because it's too hard. I mean, that's why those policies say that. And that's the old model of care. And and so it's things like that. Or we have baby exchanges happening in the parking lot, right? So we don't recognize that we've got a surrogacy going on. We don't recognize that that we have an adoption going on. We go about it as if it is a quote unquote normal birth plan. We discharge, everybody leaves, and the baby goes in the car with the person that's going to parent because we as a hospital don't want to go through the process of updating our policy practice and procedure. So I have some real heart-to-heart conversations about risk and risk mitigation. My one that gives me the biggest heartburn is when we talk to staff and they said, oh, no, no, this isn't a problem. We get them all in the car and they drive to Best Buy and they do it there. And Best Buy is like around the corner. And we were like, no, discharge should go to the person that's going to care for the baby. And you should have care for self-care for you as a surrogate that is appropriate for you as a surrogate. You should teach a family that didn't go through the pregnancy preparation process, the skills they need to properly parent and care for this child. And it should be above board. We should not be doing this incognito. And when I we start sharing these stories, and I'm like, every week, Every week we get a new story and we're like, are you kidding me? But it's really not, are you kidding me? It's happening everywhere. I had no idea. I'm mortified. This is happening now. Exactly. Well, and the worst thing is, oh, there's a lot I could finish that sentence with. But the worst thing is (laughs) is that because hospitals are not trained in adoption-sensitive care, it's not uncommon for attorneys or agencies to tell the mom to pretend it's not happening. Yep. And then they can do the handoff in the parking lot because they're afraid the nurses will go against her plan and try to pressure her to parent. And so it's happening everywhere. And I think when we talk about crossing state lines and the internet, we talked about some of that on episode 41, that there's no one that has their eyes on this. This is why we're working at a federal level to try to get some infrastructure around hospitals, around adoption. Because I mean, right now there's no there's very little oversight and there's a lot of baby handoffs that are happening. We talk about trafficking overseas, but no one's watching our own birth centers. And I think the other piece of the puzzle is, is when you start to look like women who are incarcerated, who are obviously not going to be able to parent. We used to have, and used to have meaning just within the last few years, we would have women shackled all during their delivery process, which should never happen. I sit with security teams and police officers and wardens of prisons. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I've seen thousands of women in labor and they are not a flight risk. They are not running away. Like, come on, you know? And and when I say it like that, they're like, oh, I am fine. If you feel like from a security perspective, you need to have a gentleman who's in his 50s that comes in for a heart catheterization for, you know, a cardiac issue. I'm fine if they need to be in restraints. But a woman coming in to give birth when a majority of women in the prison system are nonviolent offenders should not be restrained because A, it's a safety issue for her and her baby because we need to be able to move during the labor process and whatnot. 
But in addition to, we need her to bond with her child, to parent her child throughout that. And whoever's going to parent her child while she returns back to correctional care should be in the hospital with us so that the nurses have time to teach and help that person have the skills they need to care for that child. And that hasn't been happening. So we're working across this prison system also to say best practice is you let her parent in that hospital setting. She has somebody there with her that is learning how to parent and is going to help parent while she returns to correctional care. And then one of the cool things that we did is a joint venture with Boise State University where a researcher came in and they put a breast pump back in the prison. So she wanted to maintain her breast milk supply because maybe she only it has like a month left of her sentence, she could pump, maintain her breast milk supply. And then those babies were returning to the prison system and snuggling and doing skin to skin and all of the developmental things that they should be doing with their parent to create that parental bond, which is so important for brain development for newborns. But also, guess what? The recidivism rate drops. Women don't go back to prison when they have a tight relationship with their child. So it's things like that where we have aha moments across the board because we're talking about things that I think everybody assumes everybody knows and everybody gets, but they don't. And it's not in a synchronized way in order to change culture and practice and procedure. Yeah, I think that is really important. Like, it's that procedure thing that I think everybody gets hung up on. Like, all new parents, however they look or what they do, they all should have these certain rights, like bonding and knowing how to take care of their child, breastfeeding if they want, but how to get to that is different. And if you if it's like outside the standard way, it's just like, well, we can't do that. Or it's going to be too much work. So when we come in, we're able to say, here are all our sample policies. Here are all our sample forms. We've already done all the work for you. We've already made these gender neutral. We've already done that. And so the willingness for hospitals to go, oh, so this is kind of a one and done. And the fact that you're going to help us address all these needs around unique families makes them more willing because it is a huge job when you start thinking of taking it piece by piece. So I'm wondering kind of pragmatically for our listeners who are very interested in this training. I don't know if you have some tips like, hey, these are some ways that you could start in your own practice today, but then maybe also discussing how can they get this formal training or how do they get connected to this more formally? Yeah. So the best way to do that is to reach out to us at our website, which is familytofamilysupport.org. We have people writing to us all the time asking specific questions or I need information to be able to present to my leadership. We have some webinars that are now being archived so they can watch a webinar, share the webinar, get people to understand the overall vision for what we do. A lot of times what we do is misunderstood. That's why we're really clear on the pro-education piece. Like, yes, we teach adoption. But that doesn't mean that we're working with adoption agencies. Our goal is not to increase adoption. Our, our goal is to educate women and to not have them come back to me and say, Rebecca, I just didn't know. I hate that line. I think there's no excuse for that in this day and age. So that's probably the best way because we have resources on that page. We have 
past podcasts. We have, I did a radio show forever so people could listen to some archives of the radio show and that'll just raise awareness. And then we are working right now with Huggies Healthcare and doing some archives with them. And that gives you the ability to get CNEs to learn some of this content. So I think that's probably the best way to tackle that. And, and just to shoot us a message on your contact us form on your computer, just shoot it to us at family to family support.org. Uh, and then we'll be able to have a conversation with you. What's your hospital like? What's the size like? How many people would, would you need to train? Can we do a combination of in-person versus virtual? What, what can we do this year that we maybe will morph next year with COVID? We have tackled a lot of our training, all of our training online now. So we have the ability to do that with hospitals and because the core training is a four hour training. So we broke it into four one hour webinars. So there's lots of different educational opportunities and just having conversations with us about what's your community like? How can we best tackle it with you? What are your biggest challenges? Because what's happening in Mississippi is different than California is different than New York. So we want to make sure it's really community specific. Yeah, and I would just add on the physician side, we oftentimes get invited to Grand Rounds. And that's a great place for us to introduce this concept because the concept of neutral compassionate care is not just an obstetrics and children's health care concept. It really can be applied to any patient. And we believe it's step one of understanding and moving towards trauma-informed care for all patients. And so we get invited to grand rounds. We get invited to physician meetings all the time to present. We do have a modified quick and dirty version for the physicians. And then that allows them to understand like, oh, if the hospital moves forward with this program, I'm not going to be in the way. I'm going to complement what's occurring. And some positions lean in a lot. And some physicians are like, okay, I get it. I had a dinner with uh, physicians in Mississippi. And literally, there was probably 10 of them there. I was there for two and a half hours. And we talked through all sorts of patients. And they're like, I just don't know what to do. And I think giving them that language, and also allowing them to say things to their patients, like, are you going to parent or you can choose someone else to parent? Or if a woman's coming in as a surrogate to say, are you connected with post-surrogacy support? We see surrogates not um, necessarily always mourn the baby, but they mourn the relationship with the family. So recognizing that and helping them understand that they have on average seven minutes with their patient in the office when they do OB visits, seven minutes. So we have to have wraparound systems in place to support that provider to be successful. I do have a question kind of getting back to what Nicole asked. So let's say we have a listener right now and she's a nurse and maybe she's really interested in providing neutral compassionate care. But, you know, she has those patients that maybe have a substance use disorder. Let's use that example since you brought that up. And she's really sad when she sees the baby is born and feels that judgment like, oh, that mom shouldn't be using that those drugs. How can she tomorrow, if she's going to go into her shift, how can she change and be more neutral and compassionate in that short term? I think that goes back to what I said about you don't get a vote. And that you have to take to heart. Right? So you don't get a vote on the choices that that woman made prior to becoming your patient, and you don't get a vote on the choices that that woman makes after she leaves your care. And understanding that your role is to see her as a person 
who you would value just like the person that you would value in the room next door. When we do this type of kind of heart education and soft skills, it's just like we learned a lot of times. I'm like, pull up a chair, sit down next to her, introduce yourself and ask her, how best can I help you today? Those patients are really hard, right? They're hard patients to take care of. Many times they're going through different stages of perhaps they're going through detox or perhaps their medication has been changed or perhaps, you know, there's a lot going on with those patients and they're hard and they're emotionally fragile and mad and sad are really close on the wheelhouse, right? And so what we oftentimes see is mad. And so helping nurses understand okay, what can I do to help today be a great day for us as we work together as a team? And sitting down and talking to them and knowing that you're there with them through this. And I've had patients that were screaming at me at the door and telling me to get out because they didn't want to have anybody take care of them. And I asked a question like, may I come in and sit down? And if they say yes, then I can get there with them. Or if they say no, get out. I stay where I'm at, I stay supportive, and I say my job today is to be with you and help you have a day that hopefully at the end of the day you feel better than you feel right now, which is why you're in the hospital setting. And so what's your goals? Those are fundamental clinical skills, but they have to be used with that compassionate tone and they have to come from a place that says, I am free of judgment of why it is that you're here today in my care. And that's probably the biggest piece. And I think what's so important about what you're saying, and I know Stephanie and I have been in some other spaces having these conversations, especially when you think about these ones and tens, this political environment. And it's like when you think about nursing, talk about a heterogeneous group of beliefs, right? Sometimes I think in our own bubble, we're like, how do all nurses not think like this and prioritize this? But the reality is, is that they don't. And so what I appreciate, and I, this is as good for me too, is saying it's okay for y'all to be diverse in your beliefs and in your thinking and whatever background they, that may be for you, your lens. But there's still this space where you can be that person, but you can also provide neutral care that doesn't negatively impact your patient. Or do I have this all wrong? No, I think absolutely. I When Dixie mentioned one of the nurses we talked about in Louisiana, who she really struggled with LGBT plus parenting. And she was like, I am so thankful I came to this training because I don't agree with this, but I can be neutral and compassionate. You gave me a space to stand today and I can stand there. And I think there is this idea that if we aren't neutral and compassionate, we aren't neutral, then we're condoning, we're leaving it, we're allowing it. I mean, we've had some really intense conversations with some nurses that were like, but I'm not okay with it. And it's like, you don't get a vote. We understand that in your suitcase and in your personal life, you're not okay with this, but you as a health care provider need to be neutral and compassionate. That is your space for today. And so, yes, I think, I think you're spot on. Well, and I think for Steffi and I, we think, okay, we're in this neutral, compassionate space. So that should bleed into everything else. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's going inside out rather than outside in, if that makes any sense. Well, I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. Because actually what we see happen is the people that are starting out in that space they start seeing their patients and they start getting to know their patients and they start really liking their patients. And they're like, I now have 
these dads in front of me that I stood in a neutral, compassionate space. And now I have these people that actually I really like. And this isn't as hard as I thought it was going to be to be neutral and compassionate. So I think it it's a safe entry point. And I think in a lot of ways, it does bleed out to others because we start seeing that we all have stuff. We all come in. We're a beautiful mess, right? And so all of a sudden, there's not this superiority when you sit knee to knee with people that you thought were so different and they're not. And so I think it does ooze into all these other areas. And that transformation encourages others that are late to the party and don't want to move into that space because they're like, well, wait a minute, if Barbara can sit in there and teach discharge training to dads, I guess I can too. And I want to answer too, to piggyback off what Dixie said to your question, Stephanie, about the next day after substance use disorder, as far as dealing with that patient, how do you Mm -hmm. move back in? One of the things we also talk about is that we have to stop and ask ourselves when we're getting triggered. Like when we are get, feeling that heaviness, that's, that's like you said, it makes us sad, it makes us mad. And we go through steps in our training that you, it's mindfulness, right? So I have to realize I'm being triggered. The way I'm responding is, is kind of off the charts. Maybe I'm madder than I should be or sadder than I should be. Or once I realize that, I need to stop and reflect. And I may not be able to reflect right then. I may need to put a pin in it and be like, all heck's breaking loose. I can't stop and have a kumbaya moment with myself, right? But I can reflect and think, what is, what is this triggering in me? And can I realize what it's tied to? And then I can realign to being back into that patient-centered care space, that sweet spot. If I can think about it, realize, figure out where it's coming from, and then realign. Sometimes, though, we talk about when it's not about neutral compassionate care, it's about your own stuff. You have to refocus instead of realign. So when I see someone going through substance use disorder, I get triggered because I went through infertility. And why does she get to have a baby? And she's going through substance use disorder, and I couldn't have a baby. And so that's totally different than maybe why it would make you sad, Stephanie, because you have something different in your suitcase. So that mindfulness and awareness helps me then the next time I go in, go, okay, you know what? Last time this totally triggered my infertility. I got to be, I got to be aware of that. And so that piece of realize, reflect, realign is what we encourage people to do too about what are we carrying with us and how are we responding to our patients and then our safe environment to call each other in to say, wow, you really snapped at that patient with something going on with you. You know, that's that we're all in process. And so it's a safe space. I am loving this so much that I'm like, oh, we're going to have to go in shortly because I could just sit here and I know we're running out of time. I know sit in this moment and there's so much that we could talk about. I mean, the other piece that just for planning purposes, these concepts apply to women who are struggling after sexual assault and domestic violence, and how do we best practice care for them and recognize and see them. And there are so many topics that if we can just see the patient, hear their story, but not own their story, not judge their story, and care for them, in a space that is meets their needs and supports the work that we are doing. Because all of us that went into healthcare went into healthcare for a mission-based reason, whatever that is. Inside your heart, there was a reason why you did this. And so go back to the roots of that mission base. I have a great talk that talks about the, the antidote to burnout is compassion. So 
when you're exhausted and you don't want to have to work harder is the time where you need to take a moment, breathe, but you need to lean in with your patient and lean in with your team because it actually will fill your bucket and help you with that feeling of burnout. I love that. That's so true. It's really true because what we do automatically is we run away and we withdraw. And we do that at the patient's bedside. We do that with our teams. We do that with our partners in life, whatever it is. When we're exhausted and we're like, I don't have any more to give, we withdraw. But actually, the brain is set up so that you receive that oxytocin burst in your brain when you lean in and become passionate with people. And that's what you need. You need that to really help you go through those some of those moments instead of running away. So we give healthcare providers the permission to lean in, but not to own the story of the patient. Lean in with your heart to meet that patient at a humanity level. I think also you're empowered to respond to a situation and people say, I only have seven minutes. I can't take the time to do this. If you have a situation escalate, you're going to use the time anyway. So how do you want to use that time? Do you want to use it to lean in and build up relationship with your patient and take the time to really listen to them? Or do you want to be acting out of a reaction to them escalating? So we, we don't have the, we really have to take this time, especially with the levels of trauma that so many of our patients have been through. Yeah. I'm loving how you loop in trauma-informed care. And for our listeners, we do have an episode on trauma-informed care and many of the principles that Rebecca and Dixie are mentioning are within that, that difference of a lot of times we don't want to go there because we don't want to take that story on, but that's not our responsibility. So if some of this stuff is sounding interesting to our listeners. For sure, I can't remember off the top of my head what episode number that is, but I believe that you would find that a nice compliment. Though again, it was Trauma-Informed Care with Allison Tinker. You'd find that as a very nice compliment to this episode. It's really good. This is Rebecca and I listened to it and loved it. So I highly recommend it as well. I was like, yes, yes, yes. I love this. Oh, awesome. Thank you. (laughs) So in the interest of time, Rebecca and Dixie, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? I just want to say this is Dixie. I think every caregiver should have this knowledge of neutral compassionate care and every community should expect their healthcare provider to provide that to them. Yeah, I would just echo that. And I guess my last thought is, don't be afraid to bring this to your leaders and to say, this is something I think that we need because it sounds like such a small thing. I want I want training in unique family care. I want training in neutral compassionate care, but it can really change the whole culture uh, within your women's center, within a hospital, within your clinics, within your physician's offices, it can shift everything. And we've seen it over and over again. So just encourage you to draw attention to this, raise awareness that's available. It feels like a really big project to take on, but actually it's a whole, a huge impact for a small amount of work because of the work we've already done for you. So we would love to hear from you if you guys have questions or want more information, because that's obviously the first step is raising awareness that we're even out there to help you with this. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. 
And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh,